Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. afternoon and we're going to talk about learning about whether God exists or not and to help us do that we have Pat Flynn with us. Pat is the host of the Pat Flynn Show which covers everything from fitness to mental health to business and writing philosophy and theology. He's a best-selling author, philosopher, uh, fitness coach, musician, entrepreneur, the list goes on and on and you can check out all his great stuff at chroniclesofstrength.com and Pat welcome to Crust in the Afternoon. It's great to be here, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Pat. Well, I I truly appreciate it because you had such a long journey. I mean, starting from atheism, ultimately ending up in the Catholic Church. Uh, where did uh, where did it start? I know it began kind of with a dissatisfaction of investigating atheism. Right. So I'll, I'll offer the executive summary. You know, I was yeah. brought up in a nominally religious home, so I had your sort of kindergarten catechesis, and then around the sixth grade, I specifically remember it was in my science class, I started learning about the origins of the universe and the general outline of the Big Bang Theory, and I remember thinking, this doesn't sound like what I was taught in first grade Sunday school. Now, at that moment, I didn't throw my hands up and become an atheist, but it was it was that initial seed of doubt that would that would grow over time. And then, you know, later on in, in high school and in college, I had discovered uh, a love for philosophy, but I was introduced to it by really many old atheists and, and existentialists, and none of them had many particularly nice or noble things to say about religion. So that really colored my worldview for a, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I would have considered myself a you know, sort of a, a naturalist, which is a, a, a flavor or a brand of atheism, if you will. And then, you know, what brought me back around, Gary, interestingly enough, wasn't at first encountering any overpowering arguments for God. It was really kind of going deeper into the atheistic worldview and seeing how impoverished it was in terms of being able to make sense of experience and reality. So what seemed superficially attractive in terms of being able to explain the things that I thought needed to be accounted for, upon a more substantial analysis, turned out to be almost completely worthless. And what you would find is atheists old and new who were consistent with their position, who would say things like, look, if reality at bottom is just a bunch of physical material stuff, particles, fermions, bosons, whatever, whatever it is, they vary in their commitments, uh, then we're going to have a really hard time explaining how there's any objective morality in the world or, or even how human beings have conscious experiences and what you would find are various atheists who would just deny that these are aspects of the world. And at some point, Gary, I, I reached a point where the costs of that worldview were too high, mm-hmm. where I, I really just kind of threw my hands up and said, Whatever else is is true, I'm not sure, but this cannot possibly be it. So I kind of went on this great philosophical reinvestigation and just wanted to 
reconsider things uh, afresh, not totally like Descartes or somebody like that, but I wanted to just <laughs> read different books, read different perspectives. And eventually, long story short, I'll condense it here, I, I got to the, the great uh, Thomistic tradition, St. Thomas Aquinas, and many thinkers that, that followed in his footsteps, and I was so impressed by it, eventually encountered many of the philosophical arguments for God and, and became increasingly impressed by those. Uh, and then, yeah, and then uh, I sometimes joke that I was something of a Thomist before I was a Catholic, a follower of St. Saint, of Saint Thomas. But one can only read St. Thomas for, for so long and continue to ignore, of course, his great theology and Christianity. So he caused me to really want to consider seriously the, the claims of Christ and his Church, and well, we, we see where that led. Now I'm on Al Cresta's radio show. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so when uh, you started looking at theism, was there any particular arguments for the existence of God that uh, made sense to you? Yeah, well, I mean, for, for me it was a gradual and, and cumulative process. So it wasn't like there was one argument that immediately changed my mind, because, I mean, some of these arguments are they can get very technical and, and complex uh, pretty quickly. But I think it's important for people to see that, that theism really can help it explain a lot, and a lot of the different arguments for God uh, try to give different uh, accounts of, of certain aspects of the world. So, for example, you have uh, arguments from fine-tuning. You know, some of the recent discoveries in modern cosmology have shown that the universe is sort of set up uh, in, in such an exquisite and precise way for the emergence of intelligent life. And it seems like that calls out for some type of explanation, and, and a transcendent intelligence seems to be a really good, simple explanation for something like that. You also have uh, Kalam, cosmological arguments that argue that from the beginning of the universe, uh, requiring a cause can get you to a transcendent creator, right? Whatever cause physical reality would have to be distinct from it to avoid circularity. So these made impressions on me, but I would say the, the one that really got me the most was the the sort of traditional argument from contingency, which tries to answer the famous question of why is there something rather than nothing, is how the philosopher Wilhelm Leibniz put it. But you find variations of this argument sort of all up and down the philosophical tradition, and it essentially wants to, to answer the question of, well, there are things that exist that don't have to exist. They don't explain their own existence. So why do they exist? And the general thrust of the argument is to make sense of all these contingent things, things that exist but don't explain their own existence, they don't exist necessarily, we have to get to something that's categorically different, something that's sort of, that exists through itself, not because of something else, some type of uncaused, necessary reality. And then what these arguments do is they try to then investigate what the nature of that type of reality would be, and then traditionally and especially uh, when it comes to St. Saint, Saint Thomas Aquinas, uh, what comes out of, of this uh, type of argument is a conception of a very robust philosophical conception of God as a purely actual being, and that, that sort of opens up the, the path to what's known uh, as, as classical theism, which is very much in line with the, uh, with the Catholic tradition. So I would say of all the different arguments, that's the one that made the greatest impression in, uh, on me. It's also the one that I've researched the most and have even written quite a bit about. But it was, it was certainly a cumulative case. You know, it, it wasn't just one argument, but it was many different considerations that continually tipped the scales in, in favor of belief in God. Yeah, yeah, very good. And, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, by the way, if anybody uh, listens on your show, uh, <laughs> they're going to hear all sorts of pretty high-end uh, philosophy and theology, but... Uh, 
you usually covered a whole gamut of different arguments. Now, in terms of this argument from contingency, is there common objections that are raised? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's objections. I mean, that 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 objections are philosophers' love language, right? Yeah, so we speak right. in objections. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's 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 millions of objections, right? Uh, the the yeah. answer is, can they be overcome? And I, I think I think they can be. But you know, um, one one common objection to uh, this type of argument um, would be this. So, for example, let's let's just say that the contingency argument um, can be formulated as follows, right? There's there's a dependent thing, and by a dependent thing, we mean that there's something that for its existence depends upon uh, an active causation or, or the fulfillment of conditions beyond itself to exist, right? And then we could ask, uh, could everything be dependent, right? Could we just continue to pile on dependent things, or just could we have an infinite amount of dependent things? And uh, advocates of the contingency argument would say, no, because if you just have an infinite amount of dependent things upon which for nothing to depend, that's going to be that's going to be literally nothing, right? It's going to be equivalent to nothing. You're going to have a whole bunch of stuff that depends upon the fulfillment of conditions beyond itself to exist. But if we're talking about everything, there's nothing beyond that, and therefore those conditions can never be met, and it would be nothing flat out, right? So mm -hmm. since something does exist and not nothing, there must be something different that's independent or uncaused and necessary. Now, an objection at that point, uh, which is both a, a sort of common objection, but you'll see this in, among professional philosophers, too, is they'll say, well, doesn't that c commit the composition fallacy, right? Uh, and the composition fallacy would be uh, a, a, it's a form of uh, erroneous parts-to-whole reasoning, right? So just because uh, certain parts of an elephant might be light in weight doesn't mean the elephant uh, as a whole. Is, is light and weight. Probably the elephant is actually quite heavy, right? So mm -hmm. there's a certain property here, and it's not diffusive from, from parts to whole, we might say. And then the question here with the argument from contingency is, does it commit that fallacy? And what I want to say, and many other advocates, is, is no, it doesn't commit that fallacy because not all parts to whole reasoning is fallacious. And I'll give another example of, uh, of an instance where I think it's, uh, it, it's clearly... Uh, legitimate. Uh, so instead of an elephant, take a wall and imagine that the wall is made of red bricks, right? Well, it seems like in this instance, if every brick in the wall is red, then the wall itself will be red. So now we have a property that is diffusive from, from parts to whole, right? That seems like a perfectly legitimate instance. And then the question is, well, if we're considering dependency, is it more like weight or is it more like color, right? Are we ever going to be able to stack dependent things to form something other than a dependent whole. And I think we can see very clearly by the light of reason that that's never going to happen, right? I mean, I'm holding an iPhone right now. This iPhone ha is, is a caused reality. There were things that brought it into existence. There's things that sustain it in existence. And just bringing more iPhones uh, on the scene uh, doesn't help give us any better of an explanation of why there are any iPhones at all. And it doesn't matter if we have one iPhone, 20 iPhones, or an infinite number of iPhones. So I think that's a, that's a, it's an important objection. Uh, it's, it's one we're thinking about, but ultimately I think it's one that we can overcome. Yeah. So at the end of that, you, you come up with a, a thing that's not conditioned, not dependent, but is necessary. Um, so that doesn't sound like God. I think a lot of people would say it seems to stop short of proving the, the God of theism. 
Right, and that that would actually be an excellent point. Um, and it's it's important to understand that this argument actually has two stages, right? The first stage is is what we just did, right? We're mm-hmm. and we're giving the summary version, of course, but we try to get to some reality that's categorically different than the realities that we think stand in need of an explanation, an uncaused reality. Then the second stage is to try and run a conceptual analysis on that reality and try and ask, well, what is that sort of thing? And is, is it one thing? Is it, is it many things? And this is where Aquinas is, I think, really unhelpful, where he's going to argue that whatever else an uncaused reality is, a necessary reality, because that's what we've discovered, right? There has to be at least one uncaused, independent, necessary reality, something that exists through itself, right, through the principles of its own nature rather than something else. Aquinas is going to argue that that actually has to be a pure act of existence existing through itself. And the reason there is if this uncaused reality uh, had any part, right, that was different from just the act of existence existing through itself. And I know this sounds a little abstract, but I'll, I'll try and break it down. Uh, what, then just by default, that part would not be something that exists through itself, right? To, to mm-hmm. be different from something that exists through itself, that part would have to be something that needed to be activated or, or it would be dependent on something else. So the, the brilliant move that Aquinas does is he shows whatever else a necessary um, uncaused reality is, it's going to have to be pure, it's going to have to be unique, and it's going to have to be something whose essence, what it is, is not distinct from its active existence, the fact that it is. And then there's all sorts of moves that Aquinas makes in there to show that this actually is what we mean by the classical conception of God. Very good, Pat. Well, thank you so much for coming on Crest in the afternoon. We appreciate it. Absolutely, Gary. My pleasure.